Chapter Three of the Ancient Allen by H. Ryder Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Allen gives his word. Mister Atterby Smith proved on acquaintance to be even worse than unfond fancy painted him. He was a gentleman in a way and of good family, whereof the real name was Atterby. The Smith, having been added to secure a moderate fortune, left to him on that condition. His connection with Lord Ragnall was not close, and through the mother's side. For the rest he lived in some south-coast watering-place, and fancied himself a sportsman, because he had on various occasions hired a Scottish moor or deer forest. Evidently he had never done anything, nor earned a shilling during all his life, and was bringing his family up to follow in his useless footsteps. The chief note of his character was that intolerable vanity— which so often marks men who have nothing whatsoever about which to be vain. Also he had a great idea of his rights and what was due to him, which he appeared to consider included, upon what ground I could not in the least understand, the reversal of all the Ragnall properties and wealth. I do not think I need say any more about him, except that he bored me to extinction, especially after his fourth glass of port. Perhaps, however, the son was worse, for he asked questions without number, and when at last I was reduced to silence, lectured me about shooting. Yes, this callow youth, who was at Sandhurst, instructed me, Alan Quartermain, how to kill elephants. He who had never seen an elephant except when he fed it with buns at the zoo. At last Mr. Smith, who to Scroop's great amusement had taken the end of the table and assumed the position of host, gave the signal to move, and we adjourned to the drawing-room. I don't know what had happened, but there we found the atmosphere distinctly stormy. The ample Mrs. Smith sat in a chair fanning herself, which caused the barbaric ornaments she wore to clank upon her fat arm. Upon either side of her, pale and indeterminate, stood Polly and Dolly, each pretending to read a book. Somehow the three of them reminded me of a coat of arms seen in a nightmare, British matrons segent, with modesty and virtue as supporters. Opposite, on the other side of the fire, and evidently very angry, stood Lady Ragnall, regardant. "'Do I understand you to say, Luna?' I heard Mrs. A.S. ask in resonant tones as I entered the room. "'That you actually played the part of a heathen goddess among these savages, clad in a transparent bedrobe?' "'Yes, Mrs. Atterby Smith.' replied Lady Ragnall, and a nightcap of feathers. I will put it on for you if you won't be shocked, or perhaps one of your daughters. Oh, said both young ladies together. Please be quiet. Here come the gentlemen. After this there was a heavy silence, broken only by the stifled giggles in the background of Mrs. Scroop and the canon's fluffy-headed wife, who, to do her justice, had some fun in her, Thank goodness the evening, or rather that part of it, did not last long, since presently Mrs. Atterby Smith, after studying me for a long while with a cold eye, rose majestically and swept off to bed, followed by her offspring. Afterwards I ascertained from Mrs. Scroop that Lady Ragnall had been amusing herself by taking away my character in every possible manner for the benefit of her connections who were left with a general impression that I was the chief of a native tribe somewhere in Central Africa, where I dwelt in light attire surrounded by the usual accessories. 
no wonder therefore that mrs a s thought it best to remove her twin pets as she called them out of my ravening reach then the scroops went away having arranged for me to lunch with them on the morrow an invitation that i hastily accepted though i heard lady ragnall mutter mean beneath her breath with them departed the canon and his wife and the curate being as they said early birds with duties to perform after this lady ragnall paid me out by going to bed having instructed moxley to show us to the smoking-room where she whispered as she said good-night i hope you will enjoy yourself over the rest of the night i drew the veil for a solid hour and three-quarters did i sit in that room between this dreadful pair being alternately questioned and lectured at length i could stand it no longer and while pretending to help myself to whiskey and soda slipped through the door and fled upstairs i arrived late to breakfast purposely and found that i was wise for lady ragnall was absent upstairs recovering from a headache mr a smith was also suffering from a headache downstairs the result of champagne port and whiskey mixed and all his family seemed to have pains in their tempers having ascertained that they were going to the church in the park i departed to one two miles away and thence walked straight on to the scroopses where i had a very pleasant time remaining till five in the afternoon i returned to tea at the castle where i found lady ragnall so cross that i went to church again to the six o'clock service this time only getting back in time to dress for dinner here i was paid out for i had to take in mrs adderby smith oh what a meal was that we sat for the most part in solemn silence broken only by requests to pass the salt i observed with satisfaction however that things were growing lively at the other end of the table where a smith pere was drinking a good deal too much wine at last i heard him say we had hoped to spend a few days with you my dear luna but as you tell us that your engagements make this impossible and he paused to drink some port whereon lady ragnall remarked inconsequently i assure you the ten o'clock train is far the best and i have ordered the carriage at half-past nine which is not very early as your engagements made this impossible he repeated we would ask for the opportunity of a little family conclave with you to-night here all of them turned and glowered at me certainly said lady ragnall the sooner tis over the sooner to sleep mr quatermain i am sure you will excuse us will you not i have had the museum lit up for you mr quatermain you may find some egyptian things there that will interest you oh with pleasure i murmured and fled away i spent a very instructive two hours in the museum studying various egyptian antiquities including a couple of mummies which rather terrified me they looked so very corpse-like standing there in their wrappings one was that of a lady who was a singer of amen i remember wondered where she was singing now and what song presently i came to a glass case which riveted my attention for above it was a label bearing the following words two papari given to lady ragnall by the priests of the kenda tribe in africa within were the papari unrolled and beneath each of the documents its translation so far as they could be translated for they were somewhat broken number one which was dated in the first year of perot 
appeared to be the official appointment of the royal lady Amada, to be the prophetess to the temple of Isis in Horus the child, which was also called Amada, and situated on the east bank of the Nile above Thebes. Evidently this was the same temple on which Lady Bragnall had written to me in her letter, where her husband had met his death by accident, a coincidence which made me start when I remembered how and where the document had come into her hands, and what kind of office she filled at the time. A second papyrus, or rather its translation, contained a most comprehensive curse upon any man who ventured to interfere with the personal sanctity of this same royal lady of Amada, who apparently in virtue of her office was doomed to perpetual celibacy like the Vestal Virgins. I do not remember all the terms of the curse, but I know that it invoked the vengeance of Isis the mother, Lady of the Moon, and Horus the child upon any one who should dare such a desecration, and in so many words doomed him to death by violence, far from his own country where he had first looked on Ra, i.e. the sun, and also certain spiritual sufferings afterwards. The document gave me the idea that it was composed in troubled days to protect that particularly sacred person, the prophetess of Isis, whose cult, as I have since learned, was rising in Egypt at the time, from threatened danger, perhaps at the hands of some foreign man. It occurred to me even that this princess, for evidently she was a descendant of kings, had been appointed to a most sacred office for that very purpose. Men who shrink from little will often fear to incur the direct curse of widely venerated gods in order to obtain their desires, even if they be not their own gods. Such were my conclusions about this curious and ancient writing, which I regret I cannot give in full as I neglected to copy it at the time. I may add that it seemed extremely strange to me that it and the other which dealt with a particular temple in Egypt should have passed into Lady Bragnall's hands over two thousand years later in a distant part of Africa, and that subsequently her husband should have been killed in her presence whilst excavating the very temple to which they referred, whence too in all probability they were taken. Moreover, oddly enough, Lady Bragnall had herself for a while filled the role of Isis in a shrine whereof these two papyri had been part of the sacred appurtenances for unknown ages, and one of her official titles there was Prophetess and Lady of the Moon, whose symbol she wore on her breast. Although I have always recognized that there are a great many more things in the world than are dreamt of in our philosophy, I say with truth and confidence that I am not a superstitious man, yet I confess that these papers and the circumstances connected with them made me feel afraid. Also, they made me wish I had not come to Ragnall Castle." Well, the Atterby Smiths had so far effectually put a stop to any talk of such matters, and even if Lady Ragnall should succeed in getting rid of them by that morning train, as to which I was doubtful, there remained but a single day of my visit, during which it ought not to be hard to stave off the subject. Thus I reflected, standing face to face with those mummies, till presently I observed that the singer of Amen, who wore a staring gold mask, seemed to be watching me with her oblong painted eyes. To my fancy a sardonic smile gathered in them and spread to the mouth. That's what you think, the smile seemed to say, as once before you thought that fate could be escaped, 
Wait and see, my friend. Wait and see. Not in this room, anyway, I remarked aloud and departed in a hurry down the passage which led to the main staircase. Before I reached its end, a remarkable sight caused me to halt in the shadow. The Atterby Smith family were going to bed and block. They marched in single file up the great stair, each of them carrying a hand candle. Papa led and the young hopeful brought up the rear. Their countenances were full of war. Even the twins looked like angry lambs, but something written on them informed me that they had suffered defeat recent and grievous so they vanished up the stairway and out of my ken forever. When they had gone, I started again, and ran straight into Lady Ragnall. If her guests had been angry, it was clear that she was furious, almost weeping with rage, indeed. Moreover, she turned and rent me. "'You are a wretch,' she said, "'to run away and leave me all day long with those horrible people. Well, they will never come here again, for I have told them that if they do, the servants have orders to shut the door in their faces. Not knowing what to say, I remarked that I had spent a most instructive evening in the museum, which seemed to make her angrier than ever. At any rate, she whisked off without even saying good night, and left me standing there. Afterwards I learned that the A.S.'s had calmly informed Lady Ragnall that she had stolen their property and demanded that, as an act of justice, she should make a will leaving everything she possessed to them, and meanwhile furnish them with an allowance of four thousand pounds a year. What I did not learn were the exact terms of her answer. Next morning Alfred, when he called me, brought me a note from his mistress which I fully expected would contain a request that I should depart by the same train as her other guests. Its real contents, however, were very different. My dear friend, it ran, I am so ashamed of myself and so sorry for my rudeness last night, for which I deeply apologize. If you knew all that I had gone through at the hands of those dreadful medicants, you would forgive me. L.R. P.S. I have ordered breakfast at ten. Don't go down much before, for your own sake. Somewhat relieved in my mind, for I thought that she was really angry with me, not altogether without cause, I rose, dressed, and set to work to write some letters. While I was doing so, I heard the wheels of a carriage beneath and opening my window, saw the Atterby Smith family in the act of departing in the castle bus. Smith himself seemed to be still enraged, but the others looked depressed. Indeed, I heard the wife of his bosom say to him, "'Calm yourself, my dear. Remember that Providence knows what is best for us, and that beggars on horseback are always unjust and ungrateful.' To which her spouse replied, "'Hold your infernal tongue, will you?' and then began to rate the servants about the luggage. Well, off they went. Glaring through the door of the bus, Mr. Smith caught sight of me leaning out of the window, seeing which I waved my hand to him in adieu. His only reply to this courtesy— was to shake his fist, though whether at me or at the castle and its inhabitants in general, I neither know nor care. When I was quite sure that they had gone and were not coming back again to find something they had forgotten, I went downstairs and surprised a conclave between the butler Moxley and his satellites, reinforced by Lady Ragnall's maid and two other female servants. Gratuities, 
Moxley was exclaiming, which I thought a fine word for tips. Not a smell of them. His gratuities were, damn your eyes, you fat bottle washer, being his name for butler. My eyes, mind you, and not Alfred's or William's, and that because he had tumbled over his own rugs. Gentlemen, why I name him a hog with his litter. Hogs don't have litters, Mr. Moxley, observed Anne smartly. "'Well, young woman, if there aren't no hogs, there'd be no litter, so there. "'However, he won't root about in this castle no more, "'for I happened to catch a word or two of what passed between them and her ladyship last night. "'He said straight out that she was making love to that little Mr. Quartermain who wanted her money, "'and probably not for the first time as they had foregathered in Africa. "'A gentleman, mind you, Anne, who altogether peculiar, I like, and who—' the keeper charles tells me is the best shot in the whole world and what did she say to that asked anne what did she say what didn't she say that's the question it was just as though all the furniture in the room got up and went for them smiths well having heard enough and more than i wanted i stepped off with the tray and next minute out they all come and grab the bedroom candlesticks that's all and there's their ladyship's bell "'Alfred, don't stand gaping there, but go and light the hot plates.' "'So they melted away, and I descended from the landing, indignant but laughing. "'No wonder that Lady Ragnall lost her temper. Ten minutes later she arrived in the dining-room, waving a lighted ribbon that disseminated perfume. "'What on earth are you doing?' I asked. "'Fumigating the house,' she said. It is unnecessary, as I don't think they were infectious, but the ceremony has moral significance, like incense. Anyway, it relieves my feelings. Then she laughed and threw the remains of the ribbon into the fire, adding, If you say a word about those people, I'll leave the room. I think we had one of the jolliest breakfasts I ever remember. To begin with, we were both hungry, since our miseries of the night before had prevented us from eating any dinner. Indeed, she swore that she had scarcely tasted food since Saturday. Then we had such a lot to talk about. With short intervals, we talked all that day, either in the house or while walking through the gardens and grounds. Passing through the latter, I came to the spot on the back drive where once I had saved her from being abducted by Harut and Marut, and as I recognized it, uttered an exclamation. She asked me why— and the end of it was that I told her all that story which to this moment she had never heard, for Ragnall had thought well to keep it from her. She listened intently, then said, So I owe you more than I knew. Yet I'm not sure, for you see I was abducted after all. Also, if I had been taken there, probably George would never have married me or seen me again, and that might have been better for him. "'Why?' I asked. "'You are all the world to him. "'Is any woman ever all the world to a man, Mr. Quatermain?' "'I hesitated, expecting some attack. "'Don't answer,' she went on. "'It would be too long, and you wouldn't convince me who have been in the East. "'However, he was all the world to me. "'Therefore his welfare was what I wished and wish, "'and I think he would have had more of it. "'if he had never married me.' "'Why?' I asked again. "'Because I brought him no good luck, did I? "'I needn't go through all the story as you know it.' 
and in the end it was through me that he was killed in egypt or through the goddess isis i broke in rather nervously yes the goddess isis a part i have played in my time or something like it and he was killed in the temple of the goddess isis and those papyri of which you read the translations in the museum which were given to me in kendaland seem to have come from that same temple and how about the ivory child isis in the temple evidently held a child in her arms but when we found her it had gone supposing this child was the same as that of which i was guardian it might have been since the papyri came from that temple what do you think i don't think anything i answered except that it is all very odd i don't even understand what isis and the child horus represent they were not mere images either in egypt or kendaland there must be an idea behind them somewhere oh there was isis was the universal mother nature herself with all the powers seen and unseen that are hidden in nature love personified also although not actually the queen of love like hathor her sister goddess the horus child whom the old egyptians called heru henu signified eternal regeneration eternal youth eternal strength and beauty also he was the avenger who overthrew set the prince of darkness and thus in a way opened the door of life to men it seems to me that all religions have much in common i said yes a great deal it was easy for the old egyptians to become christian since for many of them it only meant worshipping isis and horus under new and holier names but come in it grows cold we had tea in lady ragnall's boudoir and after it had been taken away our conversation died she sat there on the other side of the fire with a cigarette between her lips looking at me through the perfumed smoke till i began to grow uncomfortable and feel that a crisis of some sort was at hand this proved perfectly correct for it was presently she said we took a long journey once together mr quatermain did we not undoubtedly i answered and began to talk of it until she cut me short with a wave of her hand and went on well we are going to take a longer one together after dinner to-night what where how i exclaimed much alarmed i don't know where but as for how look in that box and she pointed to a little carved eastern chest made of rose or sandalwood that stood upon a table between us with a groan i rose and opened it inside was another box made of silver this i opened also and perceived that within lay bundles of dried leaves that looked like tobacco from which floated an enervating and well-remembered scent that clouded my brain for a moment then i shut down the lids and returned to my seat taduki i murmured yes taduki and i believe in perfect order with all its virtue intact virtue i exclaimed i don't think there is any virtue about the hateful and magical herb which i believe grew in the devil's garden moreover lady ragnall although there are few things in the world that i would refuse you i tell you at once that nothing will induce me to have anything more to do with it she laughed softly and asked why not 
because i find life so full of perplexities and memories that i have no wish to make acquaintance with any more such as i am sure lie hid by the thousand in that box if so don't you think that they might clear up some of those which surround you to-day no for in such things there is no finality since whatever we saw would also require explanation don't let us argue she replied it is tiring and i dare say we shall need all our strength to-night i looked at her speechless why could she not take no for an answer as usual she read my thoughts and replied to it why did not adam refuse the apple that eve offered him she inquired musingly or rather why did he eat it after many refusals and learn the secret of good and evil to the great gain of the world which thenceforward became acquainted with the dignity of labor because the woman tempted him i snapped quite so it has always been her business in life and always will be well i'm tempting you now and not in vain do you remember who was tempting the woman certainly also that he was a good schoolmaster since he caused the thirst for knowledge to overcome fear and thus laid the foundation stone of all human progress that allegory may be read two ways as one of a rise from ignorance instead of a fall from innocence you are too clever for me with your perverted notions also you said we were not to argue i have therefore only to repeat that i will not eat your apple or rather breathe your taduki adam all over again she replied shaking her head the same old beginning and the same old end cause you see at last you will do exactly what adam did here she rose and standing over me looked me straight in the eyes with the curious result that all my will-power seemed to evaporate then she sat down again laughing softly and remarked as though to herself who would have thought that alan quatermain was a moral coward coward i repeated coward yes that's the right word at least you were a minute ago now courage has come back to you why it's almost time to dress for dinner but before you go listen i have some power over you my friend as you have some power over me for i tell you frankly if you wished me very much to do anything i should have to do it and the same applies conversely now to-night we are as i believe going to open a great gate and see wonderful things glorious things that will thrill us for the rest of our lives and perhaps suggest to us what is coming after death you will not fail me will you she continued in a pleading voice if you do i must try alone since no one else will serve and then i know how i cannot say that i shall be exposed to great danger yes i think that i shall lose my mind once more and never find it again this side the grave you would not have that happen to me would you just because you shrink from digging up old memories of course not i stammered i should never forgive myself yes of course not there is really no need for me to ask you then you promise you will do all i wish and once more she looked at me adding don't be ashamed for you remember that i have been in touch with hidden things and am not quite as other women are 
you will recollect I told you that which I had never breathed to any other living soul years ago on that night when we first met. I promise, I answered, and was about to add something. I forget what. Then she cut me short, saying, That's enough, for I know your word is rather better than your bond. Now, dress as quickly as you can, or dinner will be spoiled. End of chapter 3